Well, the last stanza of that hymn uh, is a great lead-in to our text for today, so please turn in the book of Mark, chapter 8. Mark, chapter 8. We'll continue our journey through the book of Mark today. We're in Mark, chapter 8, and we've seen that Jesus has come, and he has ushered in the kingdom of God in his coming. And chapter 8 marks a division in the book as a whole, which is really broken into three main parts. In our text today, we leave behind Jesus' ministry to the crowds and begin the second section of the book, which deals with his journey to the cross in Jerusalem. And here in chapter 8, we see stories of Jesus' miracle working and continued confrontation with the religious and political leaders of his day. And we've been looking into each of these accounts individually and as a whole in the chapter. We saw the account where Jesus fed thousands upon thousands of people, probably nearly 10,000 people with loaves of bread and a few small fish, seven loaves of bread and some small fish. We saw his continued confrontation with the Pharisees and his instruction and rebuke of his knuckle-headed, dull-hearted disciples once again. And we're going to see in our text today his healing of a blind man at Bethsaida and Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ and Jesus' instructions on being a true disciple. All of these accounts are here in chapter 8. And so we've been looking into each one of them individually And I also want us to see the bigger picture of the narrative that Mark is developing, really to a tipping point right here in chapter 8. It's here in chapter 8 where the disciples have their darkest hour of hardness of heart and unbelief. And we saw that last time. If you missed that, that sermon's on our website. I encourage you to go listen to it. They had their darkest hour of unbelief. And it's here in chapter 8 where the disciples have their faith ignited, really, for the first time. The first light of faith in Christ is ignited in them. And it really culminates with Peter's confession of who Christ truly is and Jesus' blessing on it. We're going to see that in our text today. And we'll also learn what's required to be a true follower of Jesus. And so I want to read the whole section, verses 22 through 38, and then we're going to work through it line by line, verse by verse. But we need to read the whole section so you can see the context of what we're looking at today. So Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 22. Now, if you remember briefly from last time, he had just fed the 4,000, 4,000 men. And he had had a confrontation with the Pharisees. They got in the boat and went to the other side. And in that boat ride, he rebuked his disciples for their hardened hearts and unbelief. And now, verse 22, they come to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Verse 27. 
And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's a lot going on in this text, but it all works together. It's not placed here accidentally or just random stories. We see Jesus healing the blind man at Bethsaida, and take note of how he's, do how he's doing this. He comes to Bethsaida, people come to him, and they bring him uh, uh, this blind man, and they beg Jesus to touch him. So they're telling him what to do. Like, we know how you're going to do this, Jesus. You touch him, and then everything's going to be all right. And he takes the blind man by the hand, and he takes him out of the village. Now, that's interesting. Why would he do that? There's just strange things going on here. Why does, why does he go through these things? He takes him out of the village, and then he goes through this strange thing where he spits on his eyes, and he lays his hands on his eyes. And then you can look back there at the text, uh, verses 23 and 24. He asks him, do you see anything? Now, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He doesn't have to do any of this, right? All he has to do is think about it, and the man could be healed. He doesn't even have to touch him, right? He's, he's done all of these works and miracles where he doesn't have to touch someone. He doesn't even have to be physically present. He says, go your way. You know, your daughter is healed. But why is he doing all this? He takes him out of town. He spits on his eyes, and he puts his hands on him. And then look what happens. Uh, I see people, but they look like trees walking. What, Jesus' powers, are they like faulty here? What's going on? Jesus, what's going on? You, you can't heal this guy? He, he can't see clearly yet. Well, maybe he's got to try again, right? So verse 25, okay, he lays his hands on his eyes again, and then he opens his eyes. His sight is restored. He sees everything clearly. And then Jesus sends him away, saying, don't even enter the village. What a strange account of a healing, right? Why like that? Jesus? Why is that here? Well, it's interesting to note, this is the only gospel that records this miracle. And I think Mark places it here for a specific reason. In the first part of the chapter, we see the climax of the unbelief and the hardness of heart of the, of the disciples. In fact, Jesus rebukes them, right? You remember that from last time. 
He calls them out as being hard-hearted in the same way he scolded the Pharisees in the past. He uses those same words with his disciples, a stinging rebuke to the disciples. Then just after this miracle is noted, we see Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah and Jesus' description of the requirements of true discipleship. And notice how this healing progresses. It's a miracle of healing that progresses in two stages. He first begins to see, right? He was blind completely. Jesus touches him. And he begins to see, but he doesn't see clearly, does he? He sees men like trees walking. Now, trees don't walk. Everybody knows that. And so it wasn't clear. It wasn't perfect crystal clear. He begins to see, but not clearly. And I believe this is acting as a setting to illustrate the progression of spiritual insight and faith in the disciples that we're going to see in the coming verses. I think that's why this is placed here. There are two levels of meaning here. There's an outward vision and an inner perception. Peter and the disciples' perception remain fuzzy at this stage. We're about to see Peter confess that Jesus is the, the Messiah. Who do you say that I am? Oh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is how it's recorded in other Gospels. So he does see Jesus as Messiah. But then we just read, right? He's rebuked by Jesus immediately afterward in the same setting. So he, it's like he started to see, he saw Jesus as Messiah, but he doesn't see everything clearly yet. And so this healing introduces this whole section on discipleship, which is really the account of progression in spiritual insight in our hearts and minds and our souls. In the first part of the book, there's this emphasis on the crowds, and we see the demons even recognizing the true identity of Jesus. Now the disciples start to understand, and we see Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. Look at verse 27. And so I believe that's why this is, this is put here, and Mark put it here on purpose, and why Jesus did it that way. It's like, why would Jesus heal someone that way? There has to be a reason for that, and I believe that's what the reason is. He's trying to help us to see how faith and how we see the true treasure of who Jesus is. Sometimes that just doesn't always happen crystal clear in our lives. It, it unfolds sometimes progressively. Look at verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples. They go to Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So, hey, we've been dealing with the crowd's disciples. What do they think about me? Who do they say that I am? And they give them all kinds of answers, right? Look at 28. They told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And so he gets right to the heart of it, doesn't he? Verse 29. Who do you say that I am? And Peter's always Johnny on the spot, man. He's just bang, right with the answer. I love, P I love that about Peter. You are the Christ. And he strictly charges them not to tell or to tell no one about him. So now their eyes are being opened. They're starting to see. Though the crowds got the answer wrong, it was wrong. He's not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He's not just a prophet. Their answers were wrong. Peter understands. 
Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Messiah. When you see the word Christ there, the Christ, that means the Messiah, the one to save Israel. And we see in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus' response to Peter's answer. Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It wasn't flesh and blood that gave you eyes to see that, Peter. But my Father who is in heaven, he opened your eyes to see that. He gave you eyes to see and ears to hear, Peter. So blessed are you, Peter. And the question for the disciples is the same question for us today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Everyone must answer that question individually. And the answer to that question, your answer to that question, determines your whole eternity. The answers today are similar to those in our text, aren't they? Some say he is a prophet. Some say he's a good teacher. A righteous man, you'll hear people say. And all those answers are wrong. They're the wrong answer. They'll leave you eternally dead, if that is your answer to that question. Those answers show you have no faith and show that you're not trusting in Jesus for your salvation. Peter's answer is correct. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it is through faith in Jesus alone that you can have life and be saved from the judgment and wrath that you deserve and I deserve for my sins. Who do you say that Jesus is? A true believer is one who is willing, whenever necessary, to fly in the face of popular opinion and openly express their conviction that's different than that of the crowd. It would have been easy for the disciples to go along with what the crowd said, right? I don't want to stand out here, you know, I don't want to look dumb. <laughs> You're a prophet? Are you Elijah? I mean, that's what we do, right? We go along with the crowd so often. And I've been there. I've been there when the crowd's talking about Jesus, and I've been ashamed and not spoken out. I'll never forget those times. I'm ashamed. I'm, I'm ashamed of those times. They burn in my memory. And I pray, never again, God, give me, give me boldness. May I never be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And so the true believer is one who, in the midst of the crowd, when they're getting it wrong, will stand up and say, Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. Believe in him and you can be saved today. That's what the true believer does and says. Conforming to the world, compromising on basic issues, the unwillingness to be distinctive is strongly condemned in the scriptures. We see that all over the place. When the sons of God marry the daughters of men, the result is tragedy. When Israel worships a golden calf, 3,000 Israelites lose their lives. When Israel, with the purpose of being, <coughs> being like the other nations, demands a king, the final result is shameful defeat in battle, and the king commits suicide. 
When the compromiser, Jeroboam, institutes calf worship in Bethel and Dan, he's leading the people into a path that finally results in shameful exile into a pagan country. We as believers are to be shining lights in the midst of the world. We're to be set apart, to be spiritually different from the world so that we can be a blessing to the world. And so here in Mark 8, while everyone else is saying that Jesus is just but a man, John the Baptist or Elijah or the other prophets, the true follower of Jesus answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so, who do you say that Jesus is? Your answer shows what you believe and determines where you will spend your eternity and so believe in him today. Know that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and make that your forever answer. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter takes him aside, rebukes him. And turning and seeing the disciples, he, says, he rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so Jesus' prediction here that he'll be killed and rise again was strongly rejected by his disciples, Peter being their leader in this case. I'm sure not just Peter thought this, but they were all probably thinking this, or most of them. This was not the Messiah they had anticipated and longed for. No way, Jesus, no way are you dying like that. No way. They were looking for an earthly king who would rescue them from the tyranny of Rome, a military political leader who would reign on the earth and save the Jews. Being rejected and killed is not part of the plan, Jesus. You got it wrong. Never should that happen to you. But being rejected and killed and rising on the third day was always God's plan from all of eternity. They just didn't get it. Isaiah 53 foretold it. says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now notice that Jesus is speaking very plainly. It says that in the text, verse 32. He's saying these things plainly. No parables, no veiled truths. He's telling them very plainly in very plain language what's going to happen. Now, Peter, who is just praised for confessing Jesus as Messiah, the son of the living God, is now speaking against God's plan. And in that moment, Peter is actually being used by Satan to tempt Jesus away from the cross. How can that be? Peter, the, the leader of the disciples, how could Satan be using him in that moment? But he is, and Jesus knows it. He knows it immediately, and he says it. Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine Peter's horror? It's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? I love you. I just said you're the son of God. Why are you talking to me like that? You just called me the adversary, Satan. Whoa. Another stinging rebuke right there in front of everyone. Jesus would have nothing to do with Peter's temptation to take him away from the cross. 
And Mark uses the same word here in verse 30, or same word here as he used in verse 30. And it's used elsewhere when he rebukes the demons. So he's rebuking Peter just like he rebuked the demons. And he says, get behind me, Satan. He says this publicly in front of everyone. So in his rebuke, he's making it clear to everyone who is there that the cross is the way and the will of God and there is no other way. Any other way is the way of Satan and not of God. There is no other way. Now, Peter's reaction is natural, right? The cross is offensive. Most are willing to accept the fact, or most people are not willing to accept the fact that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's an offensive thing to say. You mean my sins can't be forgiven unless there's blood shed? Are you kidding me? What kind of crazy religion are you in? That's what you'll hear from the feel-good philosophies of our day. Christ crucified is to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. It's foolishness. But in this very cross is revealed the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this fact is only understood and appreciated by those who are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This paragraph is the core of what discipleship is. If you want to understand the meaning of discipleship, this is, this is the place to start right here. This is the core of what discipleship truly is. Let's look at it. Let's break it down here. It's a call to lay down your life in exchange for another. It's a call to turn from selfishness and self-indulgence. It's a call to take on humility, sacrifice, and suffering through faith in following Jesus. The path Jesus took to the cross is a similar path for his followers. We're not promised health, wealth, and prosperity as followers of Jesus. I'm sorry to inform you of that this morning. If you were thinking health, wealth, and prosperity is what I get for loving Jesus, I'm sorry, that's just incorrect. We're never promised that. In fact, it's just the opposite. So if that's what you think you were promised, I, I do have some bad news for you in that regard this morning. Instead, we're promised humility, suffering, persecution for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worst, deceiving and being deceived. The bad guys, it's going to look like the bad guys are winning. And those who love Jesus will suffer at their hands and be persecuted physically. It's going to happen. 
Jesus suffered and died for the sake of the gospel, his followers must be willing to do the same. Now, interesting that he doesn't just say this to Peter, does he? Or just to his disciples. He calls the whole crowd to him to say this. Did you notice that in verse 34? He calls the crowd to him. Like, gather around, everybody. Come on, i got something important to tell you. Come on. Come on, gather around. Probably a thousand or so people, maybe more. And he tells the whole crowd this. This wasn't just for Peter, little inner circle of people. This is for all of us, brothers and sisters. For all of us. To deny yourself, what does that even mean? What does it mean to deny myself? Well, it means to renounce yourself as the dominant element in your life. It's to replace the self with God in Christ as the object of your love and affections. It's to place God's will before your will. That's what it means to deny yourself. And it really means to consider all these worldly things that we accumulate in this great nation of ours, so, so, so set in that in our minds as the way of life, the American dream. You really think of all that as trash. Like Paul said in Philippians 3, 7, whatever gain that I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And Paul had a lot of gain, by the way. He was a well-respected teacher, persecutor of the church. He had, he had status, position, probably material things. He had a lot, but it's all trash. He counts it as loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, the word rubbish is a gentle translation of that word. It really means dung, poo-poo. That's what it means. And in the Greek, it's really strong. I'm not going to say the word that it means. It's all dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Oh, that we would have hearts like that. None of this stuff matters. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. You see how he, he understands that completely. None of my righteousness counts. It's all like filthy rags. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's discipleship. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. You see how Paul puts that in there? I count it joy to share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. He knows he's going to die for the faith and he's willing to do so. Paul understands that I deny myself, take up the cross and follow Jesus. He understands that to his soul. that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Amen. That is what it means to deny yourself. That's what it looks like. Now, what does it mean to take up your cross? Well, it's a calling to be willing to suffer and die for Jesus if required. And I, I use that word, careful there. You're willing to do it. In your heart, you're willing to suffer and die for Jesus if required. 
The underlying figure here is that of a person condemned, a condemned man who's forced to take up and carry his cross to the place of execution. The disciple of Christ does this willingly, joyfully. They voluntarily and decisively accept the pain, the shame, and persecution that's going to be their own. Are you willing to give up everything dear in life and even life itself for the sake of Jesus? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to suffer for Jesus and for others? Now that concept, that concept of discipleship, that's pretty radical. And most contemporary Christians in the West have real difficulty relating to that. But Christians throughout the world live with this every day. I mean, no one's at this door with machine guns ready to shoot us dead because we're in here singing praise songs. No no one's breaking through these doors and dragging us out by our ankles and torturing us. We don't live in a context like that. So it's hard for us to understand all this suffering stuff, because we don't really suffer here in our context and our culture for the sake of Jesus. But people all over the world do. Can you hand those out for me, those little, um, David, can you grab those, you and Ben, and just hand those out? Today is the day of the Christian martyr. Voice of the Martyrs is an organization that helps us remember those who suffer for the sake of the gospel throughout the world. And today, this weekend, is the day of the Christian martyr. It's inspired by those who have come before us, and it's a day to honor the faithful witness of those who died for Christ and whose testimonies inspire us to run our race with endurance. The Groenwald family is an example of this. The story of them is in this handout that I'm giving you. I'm going to read this to us. The decision to move to Afghanistan in 2003 was not an easy one for Werner and Hanalek. I could say it earlier, Hannah Lee Groenwald. They discussed the possibility of dying in the war-torn country. And his loving parents worried about how they would educate their son, Jean-Pierre, and daughter, Rodet. But they knew that obedience to Christ mattered more than their fears. On November 29, 2014, Hannah was working her shift at a medical clinic Jean-Pierre spent the day in his room listening to music, playing the guitar and chatting with friends online, while Rodet spent time crocheting, working on her computer and playing video games. Werner went to his office in their apartment complex to prepare for leadership training classes that he was teaching that day. So he had gone and he was equipping Christian leaders there in the country of of Afghanistan. He had been there for some time and they knew their lives were in danger but they were firmly convinced in their hearts that God had sent them there. And they were from South Africa. So they were basically missionaries from South Africa to Afghanistan. At about 3.30 in the afternoon, three Islamists broke into their compound and shot to death Werner, Jean-Pierre, and Rodet. After a two-hour standoff with police, one of the attackers detonated a bomb inside the building, killing himself and others, while the other two attackers were killed in an ensuing skirmish. The Groenwald family knew the potential cost of following God's call to Afghanistan. We had a clear calling, Hanalei said. We had a mandate with this, and we counted the cost. We knew that something like this could happen, and God allowed that for a reason. And there are other 
accounts on the other side that you can look into. And I encourage you to go to the Voice of the Martyrs website. There's a prisoneralert.com website where you can get a whole list of these are people in jail, being persecuted, tortured for the sake of the gospel. You can write them encouraging letters. You can see how to pray for them. Our family does this regularly, and we're encouraged because sometimes they're released. Um, and we're very encouraged by that. But that's the kind of suffering that Jesus is alluding to here. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Throughout the world today, these types of things are happening. This is just one of thousands of accounts where people who believe in Jesus, who are disciples of Jesus, suffer and even die for the sake of the gospel. And they are willing to do so. They're willing to in their hearts. The Apostle Paul wrote of his sufferings for following Jesus in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and are buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse or trash of all things. And Paul rejoiced in that. <laughs> God gave him grace to do that. And so that, that's the call to discipleship, brothers and sisters. Consider all this worldly stuff trash for the sake of Jesus. Look at verse 35. We see some encouragement here. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall, shall save it. So you want to save your life, you, you take up that call to be a disciple. You take up that call to follow Jesus because you're not going to save yourself and save your own life. You cannot do that. Anyone who tries to or wishes to save his own life is going to lose it. That is a fact. You try to save yourself, you try to cling to that sinful life of yours and pile up material goods or good works or reputation or whatever you think in your mind it might be that will save you, you're going to lose it. You've already lost it. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. None of those things will bring you inner peace and satisfaction that you're looking for. Whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake shall save it. And you lose your life by devoting yourself completely to Christ, to the service of those in need, to the gospel. You trust in Jesus, and you put it all aside. Look at verse 36. What good does it do a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And so continue on in this thinking with me for a moment. Imagine, you know, if a person could gain the whole world, everything that it has to offer, all the hidden treasures and resources, whatever good things that grow on it, the cattle on a thousand hills, all the world's splendor, prestige, pleasures, treasures. But in the process of doing that, you forfeit and lose the right to possess your own soul. What good does any of that do for you? 
It does you no good. No good at all. It's only evil. Because all these earthly things lack permanence. And I tell you, the older I get, the more I see that. <laughs> like, wow, this whole thing's breaking down. <laughs> it's just all breaking down. Oh, it lacks permanence. You hold on so tightly and as hard as you can, and you try to do all these things that just moth and rust destroying it all. And when you die, you don't take a single thing with you. I've been to many funerals these last several years, and I see it. I see it. My loved ones, they're laying there in that coffin. They're dead, and they're not taking a single thing with them. And all that striving, all their lives to get all these things and not taking any of it with you. But your soul, mark this, your soul lives on and on and on in all its wretchedness and horror. All your selfish treasures are gone when you die, but your soul lives on. Your soul lives on. And so take good care of your soul. Don't trust in worldly things. Trust in Jesus and have eternal life for your soul. Look at verse 38. We'll finish here. Whoever is ashamed of Jesus and his words now, Jesus will be ashamed of when he comes again. Those who deny Jesus in this life will be denied by Jesus in the age to come. That is a fact. Matthew 10, 32 says this also. Everyone who acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So in this text, we see Jesus' death, resurrection, his return. Verse 38, he's coming back. He's coming back in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And when he does, he will judge all, everyone, No one escapes the judgment. He will judge all, and he will do it perfectly and righteously. And here's how it all sums up. Those who follow after him in faith will be saved to eternal life. Those who live for self and have no faith in Christ will suffer in hell for all eternity. There is no middle place. There's no purgatory. There is no middle place. You're either with Jesus or you're in hell. So, brothers and sisters, let's learn from this today. Let's follow Jesus and keep on following Jesus. Let's trust in him and walk in his footsteps and obey his commands out of love and gratitude for our salvation in him. As an overflow of worship from our hearts, let's deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Jesus. And let us not be ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Amen.